When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'll tell you things I've got to talk about later. Right now, I'd rather talk to you. Good morning, Peg. Good morning. How are you? Ah, it's just going to be a really nice day out there. Going to get a little chilly later this week, but uh, today, tomorrow, look like they're going to be a great, great time Good. to be outside. Good day. I watch um, Central Texas Gardener. Okay. Now, I take into consideration where they're from and that. But they talked about feeding with alfalfa pellets. Right. Oh, that's good. That's bad. What I I always go to your shop and tell the guys I just need fertilizer and they put it in the car. <laughs> it you know alfalfa is the, the real advantage of alfalfa pellets over other fertilizers is that they don't have any odor associated with them. Alfalfa has a very fresh, clean smell to it. On the other hand, it doesn't contain all of the micronutrients that some of your other good organic fertilizers do. When I look at Medina, for instance, and uh, Nature's Creation, some of the brands that I'm real familiar with, these folks add so much additional material in there, in addition to the poultry litter base that uh, they have. uh, And, of course, Nature's Creation has one as a fertilizer. They call it premium lawn food that is organic, but is actually based on alfalfa. I I have no problem, you know, with alfalfa, but that's that's like eating low-grade grass ground meat every day of your life and not ever getting that T-bone or that prime rib in there. So I like alfalfa. I think it's a good product. I don't feel like it's the most complete fertilizer out there. Now, if you want to use a manure-based fertilizer one time, then substitute alfalfa the next time, that's fine. But it's not really, I don't think it's any cheaper then uh you know then you're then you're more complete fertilizer so uh it's okay there's absolutely nothing wrong with alfalfa but i don't think it contains as many different things that your plants need uh as a good product like one from medina or maestro grower nature's creation some of the guys that are making really good organic products well like i said i'll continue to y'all use y'all but i just heard <laughs> what you thought and i thought hey they may be something extra well, another thing. Go ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. That's that's fine. Okay, she talked about T H R Y thryalis. Yes. Are they shrubs or are they what? They are a shrubby plant. Now, uh, depending on how far north you go, they may freeze back to the ground every winter. It, it's really odd. My business partner who lives a little north of Bergheim has them in her landscape, and they freeze back every year. I live west of Bernie, which you think would be very similar, and mine freeze back about one year out of three. In San Antonio, they rarely ever freeze back. So um, I can't really tell you that they are an evergreen shrub because, if you get very far north, they are going to freeze down. They come back out quickly in the spring, but um, their you know great claim to fame is that they have beautiful yellow flowers pretty much all summer long. They will 
generally be in bloom by April or May, and they'll bloom all the way up to the time they freeze in the fall. They are very low maintenance. I can't say I've ever seen an insect problem on Thryalis, so, um, or Galfemia is actually its botanical name if you want to look it up under that. But Thryalis is a wonderful plant, but don't count on it being evergreen because when we have a hard freeze, it will freeze all the way to the ground. But, you know, probably only one year out of 30 years is it ever going to get cold enough to kill it. It, uh, it it comes back very dependably, and I consider it an excellent plant. Expect it to get, in an average year, expect it to get three and a half to four feet tall. Uh, if we have that winter that it doesn't freeze back and it starts out already four feet tall, it can easily get six or seven feet tall. But, uh, uh, that in a nutshell, that in a nutshell, that's that's what uh, that's what Thryalis is all about. And it wants sun. Yes, ma'am. At least half a day of sun, and more sun will give it full flower, more flowers. They. She also talked about Satsuma oranges, and I know you've talked about them. Mm-hmm. Does that? Do we need a second one nearby, or can it do it on its own? Um, it. You'll always get better production if you have a second one but you'll get plenty of fruit even with only one tree just choose your varieties carefully you know 20 years ago the one malcolm beck promoted so highly was called changsha and it's a very good satsuma but man there were 20 30 seeds in every fruit today we have varieties like miho and sito and kimbro and orange frost uh, we now have some satsumas that have many fewer seeds, but still, as long as they get adequate water, they're still juicy and oh-so-tasty. Cold-hardy down into the upper teens, so it's certainly our uh, most trouble-free citrus for this area. She also talked about a tea olive. She said it's an ornamental with fragrant flowers, and it does not freeze. Most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, you know, I just I've I've lived in this area long enough to remember some really cold winters when it might freeze, but uh um it's yeah, it 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 rarely will have a problem here. I can't tell you it's a whole lot better than something like Arbacania that actually produces produces olives. Now, I, I, she might possibly have been talking about what I call a sweet olive, which is not an olive at all. It's uh, uh, actually a plant called Osmanthus. Uh, blooms in January and February. Some of the most fragrant flowers in the entire world. And uh, it'll go down to 12, 15 degrees without damage. So uh, if what she was meaning by that was the sweet olive, uh, and you look that up under the name of Osmanthus fragrance, uh, it's a great shrub. It likes a little bit better soil than what we have in a lot of areas. I would always, uh, you know, mulch it pretty heavily with some good compost or, you know, improve the soil around it. But, uh, if, if what she's calling a tea olive is a sweet olive, uh, I recommend it to you as a shrub very, very highly. Happiest place for it's going to be sun in the morning, shade in the afternoon. But boy, right now, oh, they just the scent. They are oh so fragrant. Mm-hmm. Now, is that something y'all carry? Yes, we do, and I'm sure most good nurseries do. Okay, I thank you for your information. Good. I'll get over there. Yeah, good questions, Peg. I thank you for the call this morning, and let me move along to Matt. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, sir. What's uh, a couple of quick ones for you? Yes, sir. A uh, couple of general recommendations for a good indoor low maintenance 
uh, house plant. How much light? Uh, afternoon from the patio and kitchen window. Okay, patio, covered patio? Yes. So it's not much light. Um, you're looking at uh, what I would consider low to moderate light. Uh, my top choices, uh, oh gosh, if you're looking for something bushy but not too tall, uh, the what we call Aglaonema or Chinese Evergreen. There are about 10, 15 varieties out there commonly. Very, very excellent houseplant with very few problems. There's what we call Spathophyllum or Peace Lily. Um, it, it Very, very easy maintenance. If it gets enough light, it will bloom. If not, it'll be just be a pretty green plant. Uh, there are about 10, 15 different forms of what we call Sansevieria, or also goes by the name of snake plant, or the slightly less kind name of mother-in-law's tongue, because it's uh, long and pointed. But we won't go down that road, especially this close to Valentine's Day. But uh, these, these are all good bushy plants that don't take a whole lot of light. If you're looking for something a little taller, uh, my number one recommendation for, I think, probably one of the hardiest houseplants in the world is called Dracaena, and that's D-R-A-C-A-E-N-A, Dracaena compacta. Technically, it's Dracaena deramensis, Janet Craig, subvariety compacta. But you just asked for Dracaena compacta. They're very slow-growing. You can get them in anything from a six-inch pot to six feet tall. But uh, for an upright plant, that's that's probably the hardiest houseplant I've ever seen. Uh, other okay. upright houseplants, uh, there is Dracaena Janet Craig, like a lady's name, which is uh, very, very good there is also what is commonly called the corn planter, Dracaena fragrance, Dracaena massangiana, uh, goes by, those are its proper names, but the, what they call fragrance is more green. The massangiana form has more yellow in the leaves, but those are some of your taller growing house plants that I'll put on the list of very, very easy to maintain. But, uh, again, for an upright plant, that Dracaena compacta, man, that's just, uh, that, that's just one of the hardiest plants in the world. Okay. Uh, and the second question is, <clears throat> front lawn, what are those tall, scraggly, hollow, stalky-looking weeds, and how do I get rid of them? They're called dandelions, and um, there are many different forms of dandelions. Some of them are tall and scraggly and hollow, and some of them are short and scraggly. They all make yellow flowers, and then every little yellow flower makes a little seed head with about 50 seeds with a little parachute on it that may blow for a mile. So even you want to reduce the number in your yard by keeping those tops mowed off before they have a chance to bloom and go to seed. But even so, you're going to have someone blow in from the neighbor's yard. Your best defense is, uh, well, there's several things you can do. Uh, that application of compost uh, will reduce their numbers. Anything that thickens and toughens your ground will mean you have fewer dandelions. The nice thing is that most of your dandelions start sprouting when the grass is still brown. In late winter or early spring, you go out yep. there and your grass is brown and you got all this green stuff coming up. You can spray with your orange oil and vinegar herbicide mix, and it will kill everything out there. One spraying, the things will be dead in 15 minutes. And because your grass is dormant, uh, the vinegar orange oil mix won't hurt your grass at all. So uh, a lot of different ways to control the dandelions. They're a real nuisance, but they're certainly not a health threat to your 
backyard there may be to your matrimonial happiness, depending on how your significant other views them. But uh, uh, they are one of the least problematic things out there. And with mowing and then, again, that, that spraying, if the winter's cold enough to brown your grass out, you hit them before the grass greens up, and you'll get 99% of them with one spraying. Great. Okay. That will do it, sir. Good questions, Matt. Thanks for the call this morning. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Talk to you, Talk to you then. Bye. All right. Those phone lines are full now, so let's just get started. It's going to be Roy and Lou and Dale and Randy. Roy's first. Good morning, Roy. Yes, sir. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Uh, I have one quick question here. I, uh, I've i got my soil my soil prepared for planting some uh, some grass seeds. Yes, sir. And I bought, it, I bought it back of Scott's Grass Seed Turf Builder Commercial Mix. And I just noticed right now in the fine print where it says for tall fiscal lawns. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is that a good grass? Because I, I tried years ago. I bought. Uh, no, it's a terrible grass. grass. It's terrible grass. Really? Yeah. Really? Might be fine if you lived in Kansas City or Oklahoma or somewhere like that, but I'd take it back and get my money back because really, unless you want to plant. Uh, a very temporary grass. You can still plant the winter rye, and it's going to live for a couple of months before it gets hot. But the only real permanent lawn grass that we can seed that does well in this area is Bermuda grass, and it is way, 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 way too early to plant that. It's, you can plant sod, but if you want to plant your grass from seed, you're going to have to wait till it really warms up, and that's going to be April, May, something like that. So uh, I'd I'd take that back and tell them they shouldn't be selling it. It's no good in this area. Oh, okay. Bermuda grass, I want to have a lot of runners. Uh, just Yes, sir. Yes, sir, but the runners are underground. It's tough. Even if uh, once it's up and growing, uh, if it, if we go into a drought, the saw says you can't water, it turns brown, but it stays alive, and it comes right back when next time it turns green. The fescue that that other stuff is, you have to water it three times a day, and if you look at it wrong, it'll fold up and die on you. Plus, they got all kinds of chemicals that I wouldn't want in there. Uh, but, it, no, if you're wanting to plant a grass from seed, uh, it needs to be a sunny area, and Bermuda's your best choice. It's an excellent grass, very tough, very hard. But it absolutely will not sprout and grow until we uh, really start getting into hot weather. I, I, I asked a friend of mine, a next door neighbor, he says, What kind of grass is that you have in the front? It all dried up, it's all brown. Uh-huh. So he said it was Bermuda grass, and, yeah. and he said, Oh, it turns green after it's been in the. In the in the, the drought area, the oh winter, yeah, uh, the winter time. Yeah, it it browns out in the winter, but it comes back gangbusters. It it is by far our toughest grass. Uh, I always go back to what my old friend Alton Grimm taught me a lot of years ago, and that was he says there's no there's no plant that's good or bad. He said every plant has some good characteristics and some bad characteristics, but for a tough as nails lawn grass, Bermuda's all of its good qualities way outweigh any of the bad. Okay, you saved my life here. (laughs) Well, I I saved you some money, I hope. Take that, get back, and get some Bermuda seed at some point. And about Mother's Day, it'll be time to plant it. You call me, and I'll tell you exactly how to do it, Roy. Okay, thank you very much, sir. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, fescue is a bad, bad choice for this area. Just no two ways about it. Lou is next. Good morning, Lou. Bob, good morning. I appreciate you taking my call. I appreciate your calling. How can I help today? 
Well, a number of years ago, I got some tangerines from Malcolm Beck. He yep. had some trees out there at Gardenville. Yep. Oh, variety and, called uh, Changsha. Yeah, and they've, they've been very good. I, I, uh, planted some, I planted some seeds, uh, and he gave me some instructions on how to do that, and I'm trying it this spring, and it's not working. So I it, guess it needs to warm up. Propagate those seeds. Yeah, it. Uh, you need to have warm soil. Malcolm was putting them on a propagating mat, which uh, kind of like one of these electric doormats they use up north to keep uh, keep the ice off. It, it creates a warm base, and uh, the tangerines take warm soil for that seed to sprout and grow. So uh, if you plant it in the summertime, you can just plant it and water it, and it'll come up and grow. But start planting it uh, fall or winter months, you better have a propagating mat to put it on, or it'll just sit there and won't do anything. Yeah, I believe he said you need to keep the seeds moist before you put them in the ground. Is that correct? Mm, I, I don't it, remember. It, it will get them off to a good start if you would give them uh, – you know, about a 15-minute soak in Garrett juice or something like that before you plant them. But you certainly don't want to keep them soggy wet. You don't want to soak them overnight or anything like that. Soak them about 15 minutes before you plant them. And when the soil is warm, you should get basically 100% germination, and uh, it'll happen fairly quickly. Now, as I'm sure you've discovered, the one... The one issue, shall we say, that that uh, uh, tangerine that uh, Malcolm was so fond of is that it is full of seeds. <laughs> you got enough seeds to plant out of one tangerine to get it, one tree for everybody in the neighborhood. Some of the newer hybrids uh, also have delicious flavors without so many seeds. But if you don't mind spitting a few seeds, old Changsha is hard to beat. Well, that's true. They do have lots of seeds, but... Uh... A couple of years ago, uh, we had a dry summer, and the uh, fruit came out not very good. And I right. heard you talk about keeping them moist during the summer. Yes, sir. That has made all the difference. Yes, all sir. The difference. They're just a really great crop this year. And I appreciate, again, taking your call. And I really appreciate your comments yesterday about somebody that would uh, have gardens that were uh, in, in tires. I know exactly what you were talking about. <laughs> You know, sometimes, uh, boy, talk about something that would get your neighborhood association. I hate neighborhood associations, but wouldn't that be fun just to see them have a conniption fit over planting a bunch of <laughs> race-fed gardens and tires? At least I can find something to smile about about that. Hey, Lou, you get out and have a great uh, Sunday, great President's Day tomorrow, and we'll talk again. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. And goodbye. All right, let's take one more, and that'll be Dale. Good morning, Dale. Well, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Uh, howdy. Um, I was wondering, it's a curiosity question, but maybe it's more than it, or maybe I need to be doing something. I, I, I don't want to call it a weed or something. Something has invaded just my backyard. It's a long, thin, with a pointed top weed or something. And it grows about six inches a day, and it gets about eight inches thick, and then yeah. it'll have little white, leaves, little white flowers all over it and 10 million seeds per plant. Oh goodness! Oh my goodness! <laughs> it's it's called it's called bed straw, and you know many years ago they used to actually harvest it, dry it, and stuff mattresses with it. But uh, oh it, and it's kind of prickly. Well, it's not really prickly, but it's kind of like Velcro. It'll stick to you and follow you around everywhere you go if you walk through it. So that's that that, it's it's. Uh, 
It's obnoxious, but I can think of a whole lot worse weeds to have. Uh, uh-huh. Real easy to kill. That vinegar and orange oil mix, a gallon of strong it'll vinegar, two ounces of orange oil, it'll kill it yeah. in 10 minutes, totally and completely. Oh. Uh, if it's really mixed in with uh, plants that are green that you don't want to spray, uh, just put on your gloves and pull it out. It comes out. It's got almost no root system, but uh, no, it's it's a very common weed and becoming even more common because it, it's so successful, so to speak. It's evolved those little Velcro seeds that stick to animals or people or whatever else, and then everywhere oh, you go, yeah. you're planting more, 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 more of it. Squirrels probably planted a nice patch for you, but uh, uh-huh. it's easy to kill. It doesn't really hurt anything, but it sure is obnoxious. Yeah, okay. I, You know, I've lived in this house 40 years, and that's this is the first year I've all of a sudden, <laughs> what's this? Well, you've been lucky for 39 years, so uh, <laughs> now it's, it's, I, compared to a lot of bad stuff out there, uh, it's just a nuisance, but it is a nuisance, yeah. but it is easy to control. Easy to control. Okay, I'll do the vinegar and the orange oil and go with it from there. You go for it, Dale. You know, I'm looking in the backyard here real quickly. It's just another question just came up. I've still got oranges and lemons on my trees, and uh-huh. I'm, I'm harvesting them regularly. Is there any need to get them off soon? Depends on whether you've got squirrels and birds and possums and other things going after them. No, the yeah, longer they, they stay on the tree, the sweeter they become. The more sunlight that tree gets, the more sugar it makes. And, um, you know, your lemons and, and oranges both are just going to get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter until they eventually fall off. Um, if you wind up with more than you know what to do with, you can always juice them. Um, a good friend back in college, uh, we would occasionally take her dad's golf course. She lived in McAllen and we'd go out Uh on the course and pick all the grapefruit and citrus and everything else that nobody paid any attention to. And then we'd take those old plastic ice trays, we'd uh, squeeze the juice into those things, let them freeze then just pop them out and, you know, store those cubes of juice in a Ziploc bag in the freezer and real easy when you wanted a drink adult or otherwise, just pop a few cubes Uh in there, add the appropriate materials and uh, uh, <laughs> you're set for the whole summer. So don't let any of it goes to, go to waste, but don't be in a rush to have no. to pick it. Okay. okay. Yeah, thankfully, I don't know why no no varmints have uh, gone after them. You better before. be knocking on wood when you say that. Yeah, I better, <laughs> I'll start harvesting them a little quicker now than I maybe was thinking. There you go. And on the lemons, okay. on the lemons uh-huh. especially, if you want to, you can freeze a whole lemon. You don't even have to juice it. It'll take up a lot less room if you juice it and just save the juice. Yeah. But uh, lemons can be frozen and then just thawed out when you need them. So lots of options to do with all that good produce. Just freeze them as they are, the lemons, yeah. really. just right. put the, Okay, okay, great. Okay, Bob, thank you so much. You're thank welcome, you so much. Dale. Thank you. Okay. okay, bye. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Randy and Sharon and Linda and Lori. And Randy is first. Good morning, Randy. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, my wife and I bought a new house in Beeville last uh, December. The yard is overly mature with lots and lots of oak trees. Okay. So I've got, and it was not very well taken care of by the previous owners for several years. Um, got lots of uh, partially broken down leaves in the yard, mm-hmm. losing grass due to boars. So where do I start recovering this yard? 
Well, I would start um, several things I would consider doing. I would, of course, uh, good organic fertilizer would be a good start. I would start spraying that yard down. I would get some Medina Plus, and then I would add, you know, about an ounce of molasses per gallon of spray because what you want to do is really kick that microbial life into high gear so that it speeds up the decomposition of the leaves, the dead grass, the grass clippings, things like that. You could always get in there and power rake it in effect and put it in the compost pile, but why fight Mother Nature? I would just be in there. I would try to get, I would, I would mow it down even if there's nothing but weeds there. I'd keep it mowed down because that's the best, best uh, weed killing device you have is your lawnmower. Like I say, I'd spray it with, uh, with Medina Plus, but I definitely add a little bit of extra molasses to it. Beyond that, fertilize and you know, two months from now, we're going to have a lot better idea of what kind of grass is left, what kind of grass is still alive. In the meantime, you've got a lot of shade from all those big oaks, I'm sure. You might be thinking about what you want to do with the yard. If you want a limited amount of grass, there are some St. Augustines that will do well in the shade, but I'd be looking at, you know, ground covers. I'd be looking at maybe even just some mulched areas because, uh, um, it's going to be a challenge and it's not going to be something you're going to want to take on all at one time. It'd take all the fun out of having a new house. And I'm sure you have, I'm sure you have a few house issues to deal with as well as, as well as the yard. But at this point, all I would do is mow, fertilize and spray that Medina plus and molasses and let mother nature start breaking all that stuff down and putting it back in the soil where it was intended to be. Okay. Yes, we've got existing St. Augustine and. Our, our intentions are to uh, start buying pallets of sod here and there once we get everything prepped, like yeah. you're saying, and uh, start laying sod, you know, which it's going to take two or three years probably to do. We live it on almost two acres, so we're not going to do the whole two acres. But, no, I would uh, I would tell you, you don't. nobody has the water to water two acres of St. Augustine. No, I, don't no. be in a rush to do it, Randy. Wait, you know, see how much of your St. Augustine comes back. I mean, if you want to go out and spend money buying more, you can, but if you've got strong St. Augustine in parts of the yard, you can go dig up little plugs of it out of your existing St. Augustine. You already know that that's used to your area, and it's better grass than you can buy so um if you're not planning to you know host the mayor and the city council anytime soon take your time and do it and um and you can work with what you have but be very judicious in how much saint augustine you plant because uh that grass has to be watered bermuda grass you stop watering it turns brown saint augustine you stop watering and it dies so I think you're probably going to want to look at some other things, but in the area where you need grass for your family and pets, go for it. But don't don't be rushing because uh, you may have more grass than you realize. And and I would definitely get some fertilizer out. Mowing down the weeds and other things is going to help. And then maybe by the middle of March, first of April, we can take a look at it and say yeah, we can take a look at it together. You on the phone and me sitting here and you looking at it. We'll talk about how much grass you have and tell you what the best way is to. Uh, you know, to expand that without having to spend too much money in labor. Yes, sir. Yeah, between the uh, drought this last summer and the boars, it, it's taken quite a bit of the grass out of the backyard. The front yard's not doing too bad. It's got some dead patches from the boars. But, yeah, um, it's, it's not boars. It may be grub worms, but, but boars don't I get mean, after grass. Boars. But, I meant grubs. I'm sorry. Yeah, grubs, <laughs> okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> Very good. And, uh, and uh, anyway, one more question. Uh, in a couple different places in the front yard, uh, around the driveway and walkways, I've got either mice or baby moles or something that live, I think, under the driveway, and they're fluffing the, the uh, soil up. So, and they're not making mounds like moles do. Yeah. But how would I go about getting rid of something like that? Um, import a few big snakes. Or is it like little mounds of dirt that look more like just a pile of coffee grounds there? No, not like I say. They're tunneling underneath the uh, the soil. Okay. And they fluff it up. Uh, so when you, especially after rain, you walk through it, it it it'll go ankle deep on you. Okay. Um, it may very well be moles, and there is a special trap uh, that you can get at a good feed store. It's called a Victor Mole Trap. Uh, it is not a live trap. It, um, gosh, uh, to describe how it looks, uh, it has a set of spikes on each side. It has a flat pedal in the middle. The way that you set it is where you where you have one of these mold tunnels. You crush it with your foot, then you set this trap right on top of it. The mold comes through to open that tunnel back up. In pushing up, he pushes up on that little plate, and this thing is spring-loaded, and Mr. and Ms. Mold gets skewered. And um, it's uh, they're very effective. I collected a lot of moles in my graduate school years working with a, with a professor that was doing some research on them. And uh, they do make poison baits you can put out. I don't like them because I always worry about dogs and other things getting into them. But uh, at many times, if you have adequate water, you can just flood them out. But uh, if they're a real issue, uh, get yourself a Victor Mole Trap. Uh, it is a very effective way to eliminate them. Okay, and my wife has two Shih Tzus, and I've raised labs. So <laughs> it's relatively easy to keep the Shih Tzus out of the, the front yard. But if they were getting the front yard, is that something that I could or need to build some type of barrier around so the Shih Tzus couldn't get in it? And I, you know, like they, they might trip it. They might activate it. But um, the business end of it, uh, it's gonna, it, it shoots down into the ground. And unless they were trying to dig it up or do something like that and never put it past a dog not to do something really stupid, but um, I can't imagine that it would be a problem for, uh, you know, for anything. It's not like a spring-type trap or something that's on top of the ground, and it certainly is a lot, lot safer than poison. Uh, if you wanted to be totally safe, what I would do, because moles are blind to begin with. They don't know whether it's day or night or anything else by daylight. Uh, this little device is probably 6 inches wide and maybe 12, 14 inches tall. You could set it and then take a 5-gallon bucket and turn upside down over the top of it would not interfere with the trap, and it would totally keep anything away from it. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, Bob, that's all the issues I have. Since you uh, since you know labs, I'll share one bit of humor with you. Uh, my labs have a benefactor. In fact, my pets, my cat and my labs, uh, and that that she helps them to send me Valentine's cards and other cards, and they wrote me a very special poem this year. It said, "Roses are red, violets are blue. When we get hungry, we think of you." So <laughs> that if you've had labs, you know how true that rings. <laughs> yes, sir. My first lab, she liked to throw fits, and uh, 
you'd find out real quick when she was upset with you. <laughs> Happy memories. Randy, you have a great day, and uh, call me when I can help further. Congratulations on the new home. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, sir. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning. Good morning. I have some lemongrass that has been in my a big pot for two years, uh-huh. three years, uh, and it ha- it is still there. Can I cut it off ground level? You can. Did it freeze? Did it stay outside all winter? It's out, been outside all winter, but I haven't had to freeze. Okay. Uh, yeah, you can you can cut it back. I would think about you know splitting it into maybe four pieces because well, um, I have split it before. Yeah. Well, it, it just you know it's going to grow a lot, and if it if it it doesn't hurt it to be root bound, but it may fill up that pot to the point that you're watering three times a day to try to keep it watered. And if you're going to split it, if you think you may need to split it, it's much better to do it now before. It gets real hot so i'll leave that call to you if it's got room in the pot to grow for a year you whack it back and you water it and let it come out again but if it has come anywhere near to filling that pot out uh, i'd sure at a very minimum whack it into four pieces give three pieces away and replant it and it'll totally fill that pot out again in one growing season so now is the time to do it yes ma'am Oh, that's well. That's kind of my question. Yeah. What? When do I do it? No, no. This this afternoon would be would be just fine. But keep in mind that if we have a hard winter, winter, uh, lemongrass will freeze and die. It's always a good idea to move at least a little bit of it. If you can't move the whole big pot, you know, dig up yeah. a little bit of it to bring inside because most typical i never use word normal but in a typical winter your lemongrass freezes and it's gone in this case we had a very mild winter so uh your choice now is uh do i divide it do i leave it alone knowing that if i don't divide it it may be a maintenance headache for the summer's over so uh as soon as you have time yeah get after it go ahead go ahead dig it up and break it up and put it in small pots i would do that this afternoon well I'll do it as quick as I can. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best you can hope for. And and leave at least one piece of it in a fairly good-sized clump and just plant it back in the pot that it's been in so that you're not having to transplant it again later. It, uh, uh, you know, you probably want to maybe take you know, a fourth of it, put back in that original pot, take the other three-fourths and divide it one into smaller pieces. I had one little clump when I put it in there, and it's a, probably... It, it, Fill a three-gallon pot right Yes, now. ma'am. Well, you know how to grow it, Sharon. So uh, get out and enjoy. Okay. Thank you. I've been needed that answer. Thank very you good. very much. You're certainly welcome. Thank you. Linda's next. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. Good morning. I am in South Texas, just past Beeville, and okay. we have a Meyer lemon tree. Yes, ma'am. Which has just been wonderful this year. Uh-huh. But it is completely out of control. Mm-hmm. We have blooms on it right now. We still have lemons on it, and we need to trim it back, but we don't have a clue how to. When it's, you know, I always hear when it's blooming, you shouldn't sure. because uh, Well, it's no, it's fine to prune things when they're in bloom. In fact, that's when I like to prune lemons and other citrus because I can prune the limbs that have the fewest flowers and therefore would have the least fruit. My limbs that are really loaded with flowers, I'll not touch them because I want them to make as much fruit as possible. So oh, you're, 
Yeah, you're doing it for your benefit, not the tree's benefit. It doesn't have to be pruned. <laughs> yes. But and if it's, it's huge, you know, yeah. it's like 15 feet tall. <laughs> brag, brag, brag. Well, you know, and we did have hundreds of lemons. Yeah. But <laughs> well, no, if you need to prune it, feel free to do so. You do not need to use pruning paint or anything else. And uh, I think this is the very best time to do it because, like I say, you can prune out the limbs with the least flowers, and that way you'll still have uh, very good fruit production this year. Well, that sounds reasonable. So it doesn't matter. You know, I always think, you know, you're not supposed to go a third more than no. the total. Or, no. Okay, it's, so we yeah, can just whack it up however we wish. You can whack it up. Try not to take more than a, the total foliage. Try not to take off more than 30 or 40 percent. But beyond that, it's just like a haircut. You do it any way you like it, and don't worry what the neighbors say. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. And we appreciate you, too. We listen as often as we can. And I do appreciate that. You get out and have a good Sunday, and I thank you, you for the too. call. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Certainly. Goodbye. And Mark's up first. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. How are you, sir? Good, good. Yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> so I so I get up this morning and look out the back window, and on the side of our pond, at first, it, it looked like a chicken. <laughs> okay. But, it was a uh, red-shouldered hawk uh-huh. eating our last old goldfish. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you could see where it, it grabbed it and it drug some moss out of the water. Wow. Like, yeah, we've never had, we've never had that happen. <laughs> no, I, I occasionally get ospreys on my lake, and ospreys are very effective fishers, but I can't oh. say that I've ever seen a, a hawk drive a, drag a live fish out of the water. Now, I've had... Yeah times that uh oh like on my creek where it went dry and some little water holes eventually went dry and i see them down there you know along with everybody else in the world trying to get any fish that couldn't get out but i've i've never seen a red-shouldered hawk go after a live fish that's unusual we we think we we had a pair stay last summer Mm -hmm. and we think they got rid of all of our water snakes at our creek now that's quite possible yeah, that's quite possible. And, you know, a lot of people uh, don't realize that eagles are big fish eaters. So uh, uh, um, yeah. and and you don't know um, something could have wounded or harmed that uh, that fish. And then the red shouldered hawk took advantage of it. He might have yeah. not have actually been the actual thing that went after it. But it's just the fun of nature. I mean, who needs a comedy channel when you have pets right. and wildlife? They're going to keep <laughs> you entertained. Right, right. Yeah, I'm actually, well, we have all the string algae in there now that is yep. just a real big nuisance. Yes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to rig up something with a bird net and some sticks to lay across it for a while. Okay. So anyway, yeah. yeah. So um, about a year ago, we bought some MicroLife acidifier. Uh-huh. And I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's oh, It's got a ton of organic stuff in it. It's got all, even mycorrhizae fungi. Uh-huh. Well, the reason we bought it, and I'm not sure it's going to work for that, we we had this ranger peach tree that's just huge, and it's actually the second one. And there, there where the soil is maybe 12 inches thick, and then uh-huh. it's like soft cleachy. Yeah. When they get old enough, they get the roots in that cleachy, and they start turning chlorotic. Right. <clears throat> so I thought trying to use this acidifier around there that maybe it would help that situation, but I'm not so sure if that's a good idea for that. Well, I don't know that it's going to turn it around. I I find that you know one of the best answers is just a heavy layer of mulch. I the the problem with the so-called acidifiers is they just don't really work real well. 
uh, in our highly alkaline soils. I think your natural acids, your humic acids, your fulvic acids, the things that come out of compost and mulch, um, I think those probably do a better job. On the other hand, um, okay. you know, you got nothing to lose. Give it a try. I'm not sure. I was talking to my friend David Vaughn, and uh, who's our arborist friend, and he was telling me that they have tested a huge number of the, quote, mycorrhizal products and found that very few of them actually have live mycorrhizae in there. So I okay. kind of yeah. take it with a grain of salt. I look at the other things that are in there. But, uh, um, you know, I, I don't, as long as it's not right against the trunk, I don't think there's anything wrong with having good mulch six inches deep out over the root zone. And I find that that does more to prevent the iron chlorosis. And I always have to say iron chlorosis because there are many other things that can cause chlorosis. But what okay. you're looking at is an iron chlorosis, mainly because as you get down to that caliche, the iron is there. It's just tied up in a form that the plants can't absorb and use it. And where you have enough of the uh, organic natural acids draining in they'll really help the plants make use of it if you're ever looking for an iron product that does work good news and bad news there's a product called sequestrine there's one of a one kind i think one of them's 220 and the other's 330 or something like that there's one of them that's fairly expensive and doesn't work very well there's the other one that costs about $200 for eight ounces of it that works extremely well, either as a foliar spray or as a soil drench. But me, I'm just going to wow. put, I'm going to put out green sand. I'm going to put six inches of mulch on top of it. And I rarely see a chlorosis problem. Okay. Well, um, this, this stuff, I mean, it's got 20 different fish seaweed i mean mm-hmm. it's got everything you can oh imagine. it's probably got a lot of so, good stuff in it i just i don't know how effective it's yeah. going to be do you think there's any problem with using it around roses i mean that's it's made for azaleas mainly but i no, i doubt if there is if it's made for azaleas it'll be fine for roses uh, i think you can use it just about anywhere i question does it have a does it have any nitrogen in it does it have any actual fertilizer in it or any numbers yeah, on the yeah. bag it's it's got I don't remember numbers. It's similar to the other organic fertilizers. If it's organic, I have no issues. If it's synthetic nitrogen, it's not an efficient way to feed. And if you're just using it a time or two, it's not going to be that bad. Yeah. But synthetic nitrogen used over and over is very hard on microbial life. It's uh, okay. Um, right. But yeah, you know, time or two, give it a try, see how it works. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, I have a whole, have a whole bag of it now. So. <laughs> Figure out what to do with forty pounds. <laughs> well, as long as it doesn't have any systemic poisons in there, then yeah. I'm I'm not concerned. It. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll tell the truth and tell you I wouldn't have bought it in the first place. But right. I don't think it's. Uh, well, I, I just I hope it's effective. I just see a lot of these products, and they're usually not very cheap, and uh, they usually don't work real well in our special soil situation. So uh, I wish you luck on it. Now I know yeah, you'll let me know yeah. how it does for you, but uh, and, and not just overnight, but long run. But right, uh, right, uh, right. my, you know what I always say: if it was that good, everybody in the world would be using it. Right. Right. I was so excited to find something that I thought might work that I, I didn't really think about it when I bought it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. I just goofed. Anyway. Okay. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> you are sure welcome. You get out and have a great week at Mark's. I don't suppose you have any hummingbirds back yet. No, we haven't had we haven't had one all winter. Yeah, it's uh, surprising that you know none of the 
none of the locals stayed around, but uh, I'm the same way. haven't seen any, but we all know it's usually about the second, third week of March before we really start seeing them. But it's crazy weather. I just thought I'd ask the guy that has more hummingbirds than most of the rest of us put together. So uh, I know you'll let us know when they arrive. We we have a lot of the uh, the winter-blooming bush honeysuckle. Yeah, the ones that yeah bloom white wide. honeysuckle, right. They're like a month late in blooming this year. It's crazy. And they're and well, there's something I think that that 20 degrees we had back or 24 back at October 31st. Mm-hmm. I, I think that really affected a lot of things. Yeah, I think it actually knocked out a lot of insects that normally would be here. Mm-hmm. And and well, for instance, a couple of our birds that normally we would be nesting by now are like two weeks late. And I think it's something with the food. Yeah. Either that cold and or the dry, you know, early winter. Yep. So anyway, things things are different. Of course, things are always different, but you know, there's <laughs> this is Texas this year. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's okay. always a pleasure to talk to you. You guys have a great weekend and I know we'll talk okay. again soon. Thank you. All right. Next up is gonna be Ramon and then it's gonna be James and Alfred. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. I live in a church. Yes, sir. And I was one to I got some bougainvillea. bougainvillea. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Um, they are still blooming. Last year's, I haven't done anything. Do I need to cut them back right now? That's up to you. You're not going to make them okay. bloom any better. You're going to keep them from getting so big. Right now, the main thing I'd be focused on is feeding them. And, of course, um, we've, we've had pretty good moisture. But virtually all bougainvilleas bloom better when the days are shorter. Some of them, it's the only time they bloom. But, uh, you know, fall, winter, spring, this is frequently our showiest time on bougainvilleas. And I wouldn't I wouldn't sacrifice the flowers to be cutting them back. If, if they need to be reduced in size, I'm probably going to wait a month to do it but uh unless they're in the way you're you're not getting a thing by cutting them back you're not making them grow better you're not making them bloom better i'd like to transfer some too is that a good time to do that now as soon as possible okay then i have a plumbago 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 yeah same thing cut back transfer what's the guidelines if you want to transplant it now is certainly the time to do it um, I wish you'd been at my pruning seminar yesterday because we talked a lot yeah, about plumbago in particular. It. Yeah, it uh, if it is frozen back, cut it back. Uh, if it has not frozen back, it is up to you. If you want to keep the size down, cut it back now. If you don't care how big it gets, you know it may be uh, chest high, but it's uh, going to be much bigger, many more flowers. So uh the only reason to prune plumbago that has not frozen is to limit its size if it has frozen you don't have anything to lose go ahead and cut it down within two or three inches of the ground okay and then what about my uh brown fig tree it's about 12 feet tall i'm about 10 feet mm-hmm. and um pruning it right what i need to do right now you don't need to do a thing uh figs okay. tend to become very large and uh, But the only pruning we do on a fig is to limit their size, and we always sacrifice fruit when we do that. But uh, they're not like peaches or plums that really, really need to be pruned. What figs need is uh, mulch and plenty of water, and they are going to want to take over the whole town of shirts if you give them enough time to do it. But uh, the pruning, once again, is just strictly to change their shape and limit their size. If you're going to prune, now is the time to do it. But I would never... Just do an overall pruning. You might want to thin it out. You might want to take out some of the really tall branches where you can't get to the fruit anyway. But uh, don't don't get carried away or you're going to limit your uh, fig production this year. 
understand, understand. Now I'm going to start drip irrigating these, and I've I've read the you know rules for how much half inch versus quarter inch will handle. Is there any thing that I need to this be my first time doing this? Anything I need to be aware of or? Is uh, are you using the pressure compensated drip that has the little emitters built into the pipe, or are you using those separate little spaghetti tubes that like you have uh, a given emitter Com- here? Probably that- a combo, a combo okay. to water all the things I've, I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And um, so you know, I've read you know how much of a, how, how long of a run for yep. this size tube can handle, and how much gallons per hour. I've got yep. that figured out. Well. I I don't like the little spaghetti type tubing. I know some people use it, but we have so much calcium in our water. My experience has been that it really plugs up badly. So I'm a yeah, I'm a much bigger fan of the pressure compensated drip, and um, I love the stuff. You know, it's on those each little emitter puts out nine tenths of a gallon per hour. There is uh, one emitter per foot, so you know, hundred length, uh, hundred foot length of the hose is going to put out ninety gallons of water, but it's going to produce put a hundred percent of it into the ground. Uh, the thing I will tell you is, it's going to need to run two or three hours at a time to really adequately water the soil around that fig. But you're not going to have to do it real often. And like I say, drip efficient or drip watering is the most efficient watering system you have. On my fruit trees, I tend to just kind of put some concentric coils of it around uh, rather than just have a line running through because that way I can put more water into the given area. But uh, just keep in mind, you're getting less than a gallon per emitter, and it's probably going to take 40, 50 gallons at a time to really water that fig effectively. So uh, um, put your timing accordingly, lay out your drip hose accordingly. The calcium plugging up the holes. That's where I was going to use that. Yeah. With the little poking holes and wrap it around the, the drip line of the tree. Yeah, but yeah that works. Great information. Well, it, it's calcium. Much. It's calcium that plugs it up, and there's really no way to prevent it. But I have far less of a problem uh, with the drip. That The one thing that I will tell you, having used a lot of that pressure-compensated drip, is leave a, leave a place on the end or wherever that uh, you can open it up and flush it out. I mean, it's real easy to do. There's like a uh, little deal, costs about 40 cents, looks like a plastic figure eight. You simply bend that tubing over, and uh, you, you've slid the little figure eight, and then you tuck the end into it. It takes five seconds to close it off and five seconds to open it up. But put that little pigtail somewhere on your system where you can open it up, have the water going, and just give it five minutes to blow out anything that's building up in that line. Uh, that's one thing that they don't usually tell you in the instructions, but I think it's really important uh, in our part of the world. But, you know, it's cost you an extra 10 cents worth of tubing and 40 cents worth of, uh, uh, you know, worth of a little deal on the end, but it'll sure save you a lot of trouble in the long run. Thank you very much. And you have a great weekend. I appreciate the call. All right, let's get back to gardening here. It's going to be James and Alfred and uh, Annabelle, and James is number one on the list. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Hey, it's just a real nice morning, about 15 degrees warmer this morning. Supposed to have two real pretty days, and then we'll see what goes on from there. But I, I plan to enjoy this day totally. Yes, sir. I drug everything out of the greenhouse this morning, so maybe it'll get some sun. 
and I open the windows on mine because it's supposed to be 75 in Bernie this afternoon and uh, don't want it to don't want it to overheat in there. But, you know, Texas is just being its uh, its usual roller coaster this year. Turn the fans on and stand back. Um, <laughs> hey, what's the secret nurseryman's uh, solution to getting all the calcium off my root maker cell trays? Oh man, there is no secret. Uh, I, in general, I'd say don't worry about it. Uh, oh, okay. The people that do it use acid of one sort or another. In fact, they actually they'll have a big acid bath that they can just dip those things in. But you know, calcium is not reactive in any way. It's not going to undergo any uh, chemical changes that cause a problem. It's certainly a problem in in water lines and hydrants and things like that. But on your trays, no, it's it's uh, uh, years ago. You know, I always worried about salt buildup from the fertilizer because that will burn roots. But uh, you're just building limestone rock, and it's you no know, no reason to do, really worry about it. Okay. Well, then uh, the next question problem um i was watching the austin uh, pbs uh, gardening show yesterday and they were interviewing uh, a local arborist that was uh, really kissing up to the uh, austin uh, austin arborist the people uh-huh. that run the all the trees in the city right and he was you know just patting them on the back and they're the best in the west and uh, it's alamo all the way through man it's they're not going to change. Uh, the um, the presenter even asked uh, the arborist about uh, sick tree treatment. Mm-hmm. He said yes, the sick tree treatment you want to use is a good fungicide. So it's pretty much over in Austin as far as organic controls of oak will go. Well, I you know it's funny when I was. Uh picking up hay from my friend up in Sisterdale where we saved his two probably 50-inch caliper live oaks uh, and just looking at all the dead trees around them and how those trees came back out and are absolutely beautiful. You know, uh, people can stick their head in the sand as deeply as they want, and if they want to pay $1,000 a tree to treat those trees. Uh, I, I was talking to one of my arborist friends here, and we were actually talking about, about money, Bob. Oh, and that's, about the money. that's exactly right, because we were talking about uh, fertilizing, and he was talking about the fact that some of the really big boys are coming around to say, you know, that organic fertilizer really is better for the trees than what we've been using, but as my friend was saying he said it's it's not about right or wrong it's just about the fact that these guys have been making a ton of money off the way they're doing it and they don't want to change because it's going to reduce their income so yeah you're 100 percent right it's all about the money well that's that's what you call the definition of a true evil sacrificing the health of one organism for for uh, money yeah is all I got to say. Well, and the other thing too and you probably know this but the Alamo treatment does not keep the disease from spreading it works from the ground up only and it's uh it's not going to do one thing to keep that infected tree from infecting the next tree and the next tree and the next tree so all you're doing 
and I always think back to Dr. Kirby, and when he talks about animals and things, he says we've got to not treat the symptoms. We've got to find the cause of the problem. And animals just treating symptoms. It's not curing. It's not doing anything. And uh, maybe it prolongs the life of the tree. But just when we have a much better option that doesn't cost anything, you know, our problem is is getting the word out. So, yeah, I'm... Uh, it's it's like a lot of uh, politics, local and otherwise. I just shrug my shoulders and go on living my life and thinking if you guys want to do it the wrong way, I'm, you know, that's, that's your choice to make. But I, I'm sorry to hear because Austin prides himself on being so progressive, but it sounds like their arborist is not in that camp. Oh, it was all the arborists. He was he was sucking up to every one of them. Oh, you know, so and so is the best, and so and so is the best. And <laughs> all you need to do is just get yourself some more Alamo boys and girls. Yep. Get with the program. Yeah, he must own stock in the company or something. Well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. I don't watch much TV, but uh, always enjoy the report, good or bad, just to know what the what the evil empire is up to. Evil empire, you got that right, brother. <laughs> Okay. Thanks, Bob. Hey, it's always good to talk to you, James. Uh, have a good President's Day. That's, that's uh, you know, every holiday's worth celebrating, and I think that President's Day is certainly worth celebrating tomorrow. You get out and enjoy. Yeah. I'm going to go prune a tree. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, James. All right. Yeah, it's a shame that uh, a lot of folks just unwilling to uh, follow the newer research that's out there. And it's a shame most of the research is not being done here. Lots of the new research on trees resistance and resistance to serious diseases, it's all being done over in England. It's being done in in Europe because those people have banned a lot of this really toxic stuff. They're having to look for good alternatives, and they're discovering very good alternatives. But, hey, don't get me started on that subject. Let's instead, let me push line number four and say good morning, Alfred. Good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I live in uh, Corpus Christi, and uh, I have several several pets, dogs mainly. Uh-huh. What kind of grass is a good, you know, dog-tolerant grass to plant in the backyard? You know... As far as good for dogs, um, I I don't think you can beat St. Augustine, and I'll tell you different reasons for that in just a second. But um, I, and in your area, uh, the Floratam variety, F-L-O-R-A-T-A-M, is going to probably be your best choice. It is more tolerant of um, dog urine, so to speak. If you've got enough dogs and big enough dogs, you may still get some burn patches in it, but it's going to be a lot more tolerant of that than uh, zoysia will or even Bermuda. And people don't really think about it a whole lot, but dogs can get chiggers, their red bugs or whatever you want to call them, just like people do. And St. Augustine will never have chiggers in it, whereas uh, Bermuda and uh, zoysia may load up with chiggers in the summer months. Uh, plus there's nothing toxic about it you know i I know how my labs love to spend a lot of time on their back just rubbing back and forth in the grass so if i were going to tell you what i think is the best grass it's also tolerant of foot traffic you can wear any kind of grass down and if you've got big dogs and they run the same spot you know time after time they will wear a path in the saint augustine but no more quickly than they would in bermuda or any other grass so my choice is always don't plant too much of it, but in your situation, I'd be planting Floratam. 
Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Well, you're sure welcome. Give give those pups a pet for me. We'll do. <laughs> Thanks, Alfred. Bye. You too. Bye. All right, we're back to gardening. Phone lines are full. It's going to be Annabelle and Zahn and Reese and Kathy. And Annabelle is up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good, good morning. I'm so glad you're here to take our questions. It's my pleasure to be here. My question is regarding how, with what do you suggest I replace some bougainvilleas with? I'm tired of dealing with the thorns, vicious thorns on those. Okay, do but you they're like so gorgeous? Do you like growing them in pots? Do you like growing them in hanging baskets? Do you want something to plant yeah. in the ground? No, out in the ground. Okay. And these bougainvilleas were taking up lots of space, so I want uh-huh. something uh, very colorful, very showy um, that takes up some space also well i have to tell you there's some new varieties of roses out there that bloom over a long period of time if you're looking for those hot pink and red colors if you like a beautiful yellow something that blooms all summer thryalis we talked about that a little earlier in the show uh, t-h-r-y-a-l-l-i-s thryalis is gorgeous with its yellow flowers uh perennials my gosh they're gerbera daisies now they don't take up as much space but they sure give you a lot of color um shrimp plant is not going to get as tall as a bougainvillea but it blooms all summer and the hummingbirds love it there's a plant called uh geranta which uh has old purple flowers and it gets as big as a bougainvillea the butterflies love it it blooms all summer there are some different kufias um the one they call the cigar plant that uh bloom pretty much throughout the summer months and they'll get five six feet tall uh there there's lots of different perennials that are about equal or better in cold hardiness but uh they're just there there's so many different ones you you tell me how big you want it to be you tell me what color will you want it to be and uh, i can sure make some suggestions now other tropical plants, um, you know, may you may have the issue with them freezing in a real cold winter, but there are some uh, great new varieties of Esperanza. We've all had the Gold Star Esperanza for years, but there are some mm-hmm. new ones out there that are butterscotch-colored, some with a darker throat, some that are bright orange, some that are approaching a sort of uh, crimson red color. Um those things oh, really yeah what's the name what is the name of the crimson red um oh gosh you're challenging me here um i it's something like crimson bells it's uh, a lot of these things are coming from a nursery uh called mountain states nursery and um oh gosh i can see the tag it's got the word crimson in the name but i'll have to think a minute to tell you exactly what it is but uh um, there, there are a bunch, and the, and the newer ones are not quite so rampant a grower. They normally stop at about five or six feet instead of uh, trying to grow two stories tall. So uh, <laughs> they, uh, um, they're a great, great replacement for bougainvilleas. Uh, not the same. There's not anything that is that rich, just glowing, jump out at you. 
you know, red-purple color that mm-hmm. you get with Juanita Hatton or, you know, some of the better new red ones. But there are sure a lot of other colorful things. Now, uh, if you want to work harder at it, I grow some of the big hibiscus in big pots. But hibiscus are not cold-hardy. They are among the most showy flowers, and there are some incredible colors. But they're a lot more work because they require winter protection. But, uh, right. yeah, you, you look at some of the new Esperanzas. There is a plant called Ixor. I-X-O-R-A, and it blooms with clusters of flowers. There'll be like 30, 40 flowers to a cluster. There's one variety that's sort of a tangerine orange, one that's sort of a butterscotch yellow, and then one that approaches more of a red color. It's a very shrubby, uh, showy shrub, It's um, and it's moderately cold-hardy, but from a distance, it's not going to catch your eye the way a bougainvillea does, but uh, there are lots and lots of choices out there, Annabelle. I, it's, uh, I, I can fill up your yard with all sorts of things. Uh, this crimson Esperanza, will, is that something you'll have at your nursery? We keep them uh, as we get into the summer months. Usually they start showing up at the growers about April or so. Uh, yes, we keep them, and I'm sure most all your other good nurseries will have them. In fact, I'm thinking of one of my growers right now that's going to have some ready uh, a little bit earlier this year. So as soon as we get past the danger of freezing weather, now once these things are out and established, if they freeze a bit, they'll come right back out. But mm-hmm. first year it's in the yeah. ground, I'd wait till we're past the danger of a hard freeze. But, yeah, I think they're going to be ready pretty early this year. Oh, okay. Um, one have what about bottle brush i i saw that as a an option in one of my books it it blooms uh, about two or three weeks out of the year uh oh, bottle brush is super super showy now there's a little dwarf variety called little john that blooms over a little bit longer period of time but your old standard tall bottle brush absolutely gorgeous for about two weeks and then it's a boring shrub the rest of the year <laughs> don't need that i want color <laughs> i understand um, one other thing um a couple years ago well more than that i got the most gorgeous plant from you and it was uh called um false violet and i let it freeze Mm-hmm. And last year I got another one, but it wasn't the same. It didn't have the spiral <clears throat> seed pod on it. It was just not not as uh, fun to watch because <laughs> the one I had, you could see it, and it would pop the seeds out. Oh yeah, on the ground. Yeah, with it's with that spiral. Are you going to have those in again? We have had some. I don't know if we sold them all for Valentine's Day or not. Um, We're having to go a long way to get those. They come from a company called, well, it's actually up in Nashville, Tennessee. I anticipate Mm -hmm. that we will get more, but I think we probably sold what we had for Valentine's Day. Oh, okay. They sometimes call call it a Confederate violet is another name for it. Now, it's not the so-called Philippine violet, which is a much more upright um perennial plant uh, and those we will get as well but from what you're describing if it was more like our old wood violet but a little bit different coloration a little bit different seed pod that is probably the confederate violet and uh, yeah hopefully they'll be available throughout the spring okay this was a hanging basket and so beautiful uh just full of yeah. little purple 
purplish and white blossoms. Yep. That's, no, I, that, I think there was some white on them. Yeah. The ones we got this time were in four-inch pots. have not seen any hanging baskets yet, but keep checking. When they're available, we'll sure have them. I certainly will. Okay. Thank you so much for all of your good expertise. <laughs> all my years of killing things, I'm trying to keep you from doing the same thing, Annabelle. Always appreciate the call, and uh, you have a great, great Sunday. I appreciate okay. it. Thank you. All right, let's get back to the phone lines. It's Zahn and Reese and Kathy and Greg, and Zahn is up first. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How about yourself? Doing great. I've uh, got a quick and easy one for you this morning. All right. Oh, you talked about, I remember your discussions on how to girdle a tree to kill it over a period of about a year. Right. I got a, a bit of squirrel planted five, six years ago. Popped up. It's a sapling now, about 12 feet tall, and it's about uh, two inches diameter at ground level, an inch and a quarter or so, three or four feet up. Mm-hmm. Someday I'm going to have to take it down because it's like 18 inches from a real big and beautiful uh, uh, sago palm. Okay. But the, bir- the birds love it and like to stage on it before they go to the, the bird bath. So <laughs> and what kind, of, what kind of tree is it, on? Red oak. Uh, okay. One of my red oak acorns that a squirrel planted. Sure. And what I'd like to know is how deep do I make the cut when I circumvent the uh, those two cuts to create that okay that, uh, well, that bam. Okay, I'll tell you that. But before I do, I will tell you that sago will grow in the shade just as well as in the sun. So uh, uh, red oak may not may not cause any problem with your sago. But let's talk about how girdling works. If you were to slice through the trunk of a tree and you started looking from the inside out the central core of the tree is a tissue called xylem which pushes the water up to the top of the tree it's actually dead tissue no no nuclei in the cells but they are efficient at taking water from the roots to the top the next layer out is what layer we call the cambium which makes new xylem to the inside and then to the outside it makes this tissue called phloem p-h-l-o-e-m and that tissue is what takes the sugars that are manufactured in the leaves down to the roots of the tree because the roots have no chlorophyll they can't make their own energy so they rely on what the leaves send down to them when we girdle a tree we cut deeply enough and you know cutting a band an inch wide or so we cut deeply enough to remove the phloem and to remove the cambium so the phloem doesn't regrow and then we just step back from it the tree thinks everything's fine because the xylem's still pushing all the water from the roots up to the top of the tree but all of a sudden the roots have had their nutrient supply cut off and over the next several months usually up to a year's time the uh, the roots just use up what stored energy they had. When that happens, the roots die. When the roots die, the whole tree's, tree dies, and it can't come back out. So that's how girdling works. So when you are girdling a tree, you just need to be sure that you have cut deeply enough into the trunk that you've removed the phloem and the cambium layer underneath it. But you don't have to go really very far into the woody xylem in the center of it. You're just, you're just cutting off the nutrient supply to the roots. Well, that's what I didn't remember, just the phloem or also down through the cambium. Well, the cambium is a uh, cambium layer is as thin, you know, as a couple of sheets of typing paper. So it's not like you have to go real deep. The uh, 
the xylem layer is super thick, the cambium layer is extraordinarily thin, and the phloem layer is just slightly thicker than that. But uh, you could practically destroy the cambium, you know, with a pair of gloves on just rubbing it real hard. So it's not like you have to go an inch deeper into the trunk or anything like that. Gotcha. Well, I'm in no rush because it's going to be a while, but it's so close to the to the, um, to the Sago, which I had transplanted. Mm-hmm. And uh, this thing popped up five, six years ago. <laughs> and it's going to grow into the, you know, it's literally just 16 inches away from the trunk of the, yeah. the two trunks. They're yeah. only 16 inches apart. My neighbors had a 12-foot red oak in his backyard across the fence from me. And it's now 30 foot tall, oh, yeah. five years later. So it's, I know this thing's going to grow into each other, but I didn't. Yeah. Red oaks are red oaks are fast growing trees, so enjoy it until it becomes a problem, and then turn it into firewood. <laughs> I can do that. Thanks a bunch, Bob. You have a great day and a beautiful week. You do the same. It's always good to talk to you, sir. All right, bye. Uh, Reese is next. Good morning, Reese. Good morning, Bob. Thank good you morning. So much for taking the call. Thank you, as I always, have, for calling. Yeah, I have a few questions. It's the first one is about my Meyer lemon. Mm-hmm. You know, I fertilize it with the growing green. Uh-huh. Do you recommend any other fertilizer besides uh, growing green, Bob? Is, is it in the ground green? or is it in a pot, Reese? It's in the ground. It Growing green gives it everything it needs. If you mm-hmm. want to give it <clears throat> excuse me, a little boost, mm-hmm. you can always use uh, water-soluble like has to grow or, you okay. know, uh, Medina's new fish fertilizer. And I think it's good to give it a slightly varied diet. I do that with, you know, virtually everything in my yard. I rely on the growing green to give it its basic nutrients. But then if I have time, I'll mix up a little bit of uh, has to grow every now and then. Or like I say, I'm liking Medina's new fish fertilizer very well. So, yes, I like to give it a little bit of supplement. But if you get busy, don't worry about it. Yeah. And how often? Once a month is good? Yeah, once a month is great. Okay. And the other question is about my bottle brush and Texas bean. Uh-huh. These seem to only bloom in the springtime. That's correct. Oh, that, is that right? That's the nature of bottle brush. The little dwarf bottle brush called Little John will have blooms over a little bit longer period of time, but it's not nearly as showy as the big bottle brush. But, no, that's my big objection. Bottle brush is not totally cold-hardy. A really cold winter may cause it problems, but we don't seem to have those in recent years. But, uh uh, bottle brush, the biggest problem is that it is, has a very limited period that it's really showy in the spring. Okay. All right, Bob. Thank you so much for all the answers. It's always a I pleasure, Reese. <laughs> Thank you. you. Goodbye. I know right now, punch that button and say good morning, Kathy. Good morning. Good morning. I'll ask you a question about the, I have two big labs, 110 pounds apiece, uh-huh. and uh they they do bring in the chiggers from the zoysia grass, uh, and so we wanted to. Uh, we have a small area that's zoysia, and then the rest Bermuda popped up from just the uh, topsoil we had hauled in. Right. And so um, I've heard you before say you can just plant the St. Augustine on top of the Bermuda, and you can, or you actually you can plant it in among it, and if you're able to fertilize and water adequately. Uh, St. Augustine will choke it out. In the meantime, uh, we're finding that some of the herbal oils, especially cedar oil, uh, sprayed on the grass will eliminate the chiggers, at least for a while. Uh, 
have a uh, uh, old friend used to call pretty regularly. Unfortunately, we've lost him, but uh, he took care of the little league fields up in the Bandera area. And Bodie used to spray those fields three or four times a year with uh, cedar oil, and uh, never had sugars. His all his little leaguers never had a problem with sugars out there. So um, you can do that. It'll be totally safe for your puppies, and uh, it will eliminate the cedar. Uh, I'm sorry, the sugars. You know, while your St. Augustine's taking hold and and getting established. And uh, we live uh, off of 46 uh, out John's Road mm-hmm. uh, in that area, and so it's pretty chilly up here. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not very far from me. In fact, uh, last Thursday there was a wreck on... Uh, on I on uh, 46, where I had to go up and went up and went through Tapatio Springs and across John's Road, so I probably drove right by your gate as I was getting back over to Bernie. Probably so, yeah. Uh, we, uh, uh, so I was wondering, you mentioned Floritam to the other gentleman. What uh, St. Augustine would be better for our area? Shade or sun? Uh, full sun. Full sun. Floritam is the most uh, sun-tolerant and the most drought-resistant St. Augustine there is. Now, back in 19, what was it, 83, we had weather that was down in the single digits, and some of the Floritam did freeze. But it has not happened since then, and the likelihood of it happening again anytime soon is pretty remote. So that's the one disclaimer. If we have that once-in-a-hundred-year hard freeze, you could get some damage to Floritam, but the likelihood of that occurring is pretty low, and uh, and Floritam is still our, our very best St. Augustine for sun. Okay, and that's the one that's really good for dogs and being. Oh yeah, and- it was it was developed. Uh, the name comes from the fact that it was a joint project of uh, University of Florida and Texas A and M is where the name came from, and it was actually developed as a coastal grass because it's the most chinch bug resistant grass in the world. Now grub worms can still be a problem. Still need to keep an eye out for June bugs and put out the beneficial nematodes, but you're probably doing that for fleas anyway. But uh, no, it. it is just an excellent, excellent grass. It does not do as well in the shade as um, some of the other varieties that do, Del Mar and uh, uh, a couple of the others that do better in the shade. But in the sun, you just can't beat the flora tam St. Augustine. Okay. And then uh, for a tree up here, uh, we have um, a rocky soil, but we have an area that uh, is uh, got a slope and so forth, and we're going to have uh, topsoil hauled in from stone and soil, mm-hmm. but while we have this big indentation in areas, we thought that'd be a great place to uh, get a tree going and then bring in the topsoil, you know, to fill in and give it some... Sure, just don't bury the tree trunk, but uh, my my top choices right now are going to be cedar elm as an excellent tree. I don't know if you can find escarpment cherry, but it grows natively all across my ranch and does very well. Burr oak is totally resistant to oak wilt, and it will do just fine for you. Monterey oak, also very oak wilt resistant, and it will do fine for you and make a big tree. Uh, If you're able to water and if you're looking for shade very quickly, Mexican sycamore is a good choice, but you will have to supplement the water on that one uh, even after it's established. Uh, all of the other varieties, the uh, other oak trees and the cedar elm and the escarpment cherry, you'll need to water when you first plant, but they will get to the point that they are totally self-supporting. So you have lots of choices as to what kind of tree you plant. 
Okay. In the wind, we get a lot of the area that we're putting in gets a lot of north wind, mm-hmm. hills, and I didn't know if that would be a problem for it, if it would wind burn or anything like that. It won't wind burn, but you know, a young tree, you get a strong enough wind, um, it can sometimes blow it over, actually tip the root ball up out of the soil until it gets really well established. We don't, uh, modern way is not to stake up a tree. But you're going to have to use your imagination and visualize this. If you put the tree in the ground and then you took uh, two pieces of pipe or thick rebar or even for that matter wood and you put it right on top of the root ball extending out beyond the hole and then you anchored those to the ground. I would do that by bending a piece of rebar into a U-shape and simply driving it into the ground with a sledgehammer. What you have done is put something on top of the ground holding that root ball down so that it can't move around even in a high wind. That is the much better way of anchoring a tree in a real windy spot. And uh, just depending on the spot, you're right, that wind can certainly blow. And up on top of some of my hills, it blows a lot harder than it does down in the valley. So probably would be a good idea to do. But like I say, I don't recommend staking the tree, but I do recommend anchoring the root ball in that fashion. Okay. And would you think that... uh in another area, not far away from where we're wanting to do this one, but that a live oak would make it up here? A live oak will grow very well, but I am increasingly concerned about the amount of oak wilt that's around. And even though you can prevent it, uh, uh, I just, you know, I don't widely recommend that live oak because you know you win the lottery and decide you want to move to oahu or something like that the next person might not be as can you know as as caring as you are in taking care of your plants and here you've got a tree that's very disease susceptible so uh live oak will do beautifully i've got enormous live oaks all over the place and i love them but um just the the oak wilt issue you know i, I just don't recommend them as highly um, as I do some of the oaks that are in the white oak group, like the Monterey oak, the burr oak, the chinkapin oak, um, those that do not have a problem with oak wilt are a little higher on my list. Okay. And one last question. Uh, I forgot to ask you, on the, the small area of zoysia that we do have planted, that mm-hmm. the dogs have just, uh, it is the, the uh, let's see, palisade zoysia, and it does great in the front, but in the back where they run, uh, it's just mangled. And right. Would we have to scrape all that up to no. put the Floritam down? No, you would mow it down very low. you put your Floritam on top of it and roll it well. Okay. Yeah, we've gotten those rollers, uh, rented those, and, and rolled everything else when we put it down. So. Yeah. We'll do. All right. Thank you, Bob. Have a good rest of your day. I will tell you, in case you didn't hear me say earlier, I was planning to tell Dr. Kirby that I just learned that he's he's not going to be in today. We're going to do a recorded show. But uh, my my dogs and cats sent me a Valentine's card with a special poem inside that said, Roses are red, violets are blue. When we get hungry, we think of you. And <laughs> <laughs> anybody with labs, I'm sure, could appreciate that. Uh, we get fussed at uh, they they have an internal alarm clock and they know when it's time for lunch. In fact, <laughs> they do for these guys because doing a two meal a day uh, they don't go for that. They they insist on their three meals and so uh, come twelve o'clock it's time. <laughs> It doesn't matter whether the time changes or not. You know, they they don't do daylight savings. Uh, Yep. 
and they can lie with a straight face. Uh, they'll tell you that nobody's fed them in two weeks and uh, when they've just finished cleaning the bowls. So, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> they're wonderful creatures, though. I absolutely love them, but uh, uh, they're smarter than some of the people I know around. I'll just put it that way. And they're more loving sometimes, too. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You have a wonderful Sunday and great President's Day tomorrow, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Back to gardening, Greg, Barbara, Tom, and David. And Greg's up first. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Bob. Morning. A couple of couple of quick questions. Um, I am having to move uh, a couple of Durantas, uh, about five five and a half uh, feet tall and mm-hmm. wide. And there's a couple of sizable roots on there. Um, I'm going to water it in with some Super Thrive. Um, should I cut back the foliage at all? So yes, sir. So I'd, I'd cut it back about halfway. That's what I was thinking. And then I have the same thing with a couple of uh, Thryalis are about three foot uh-huh. uh, tall and wide. Same thing? I absolutely would. Both of those plants, they develop such a widespread root system that when you transplant, it's hard to get a high percentage of the roots. And in this case, you don't want to take off all the leaves because they need the leaves to make the sugars to help them to grow new roots. But uh, we don't want them to suffocate from desiccation with too many leaves left on them. So, yes, sir, you're exactly right. I'd cut them both back about halfway or as much as it takes to take off at least half the foliage on the plants fantastic that's all i needed you're a hard-working man get out and enjoy appreciate the call i, I appreciate it. have a great week you do the same thank, thank you thank you so much bye okay. all right uh next up is barbara good morning barbara uh good morning good morning Thanks for taking my call uh i live in spring branch texas kind of by you yeah and uh i wanted to know when it's a good time to start planting my Spring garden, mostly tomatoes, green beans are my favorites. <laughs> you want to do it after the last freeze. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, here's here's my thought on the subject. I normally plant mine sometime around the 1st of March. Um, occasionally, we get the forecast for frost or chilly temperatures i go out and cover them with insulate every now and then it gets so blasted cold that everything freezes and so i'm out about ten dollars worth of plants and seeds and i just go back and plant them again but if it doesn't freeze then i've got fresh green beans fresh tomatoes and fresh squash and lots of other things that i plant before anybody else does so i always i always look at the weather but I kind of push the envelope a little bit. But uh, um, and if you plant the first of March, I have to tell you we have had freezes as late as the first of April or early April. So there's just simply are no guarantees. But in a typical year, and it's like I always say, I never use word normal because Texas weather is not. But uh, early early March is when I'm going to start planting tomatoes. When I'm going to start planting uh, squash, cucumbers green beans i'm going to hold off a little bit on my hot peppers i might plant my bell peppers and my banana peppers at the same time hot peppers i'm going to put it off a little bit later eggplant i'm very definitely probably not going to plant that until the first of april really hot weather crops like okra i'm probably not going to plant that until may so let's just say for the warm weather crops the beginning time is for me sometime around the first of uh, march 
Okay. Uh, one other question. I had heard that it's good to alternate black eyed peas in your garden to put nitrates in the soil. What do you think about that? Is that a good thing our ancestors have done that for many generations in fact goes back hundreds of years with the native americans but um your that method of fertilizing is not as efficient as using a good organic fertilizer so um i think it's fine to do that but i if you don't want to that go to that much trouble I plant my tomatoes uh, pretty much in the same place year after year after year, and I grow very good tomatoes. So, yeah, but, you know, black-eyed peas, uh, green beans, any kind of bean is a legume, which, if grown properly, has little nodules on the roots, which are filled with bacteria that can take uh, atmospheric nitrogen and convert it into fertilizer. It's, uh, you know, a 100 years ago, that's the only way that people knew to do other than adding you know fish or manure or things like that so um uh, that long ago we didn't have many choices these days we do have some excellent organic fertilizers out there as well so um good policy but not absolutely necessary okay so what fertilizer for the tomatoes last question do you recommend the most I basically use a just a basic good organic product. Uh, Medina makes one called Growing Green. Nature's Creation makes one they call Premium Lawn Food. Maestro Grow makes one they call Texas Tea. Espoma makes one they call Tomato Tone. There are several good ones out there, and uh, I go with what I have or what fits my budget best. And I'm I've, I've grown beautiful tomatoes with uh, all four of those fertilizers. Okay, well, thank you very much. Have a great day, Bob. You do the Bye. same. And um, if you have questions, um, you know, realize it's a little bit of drive into town. But two weeks from yesterday, I'm going to do uh, my vegetable, my spring vegetable gardening seminar, 945. And we're just about a block off 281, so pretty easy to get to from Spring Branch. But if you want a little longer lecture about all the different things to grow, uh, that'll be... Uh, two Saturdays from yesterday, not next week, but the following week. Love to have you there. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Barbara. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, uh, let's see here. Yeah, we can take another call or two. Tom is up next, and it'll be David. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Pomegranates. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I had a friend gave me two pomegranate trees a couple of years ago, and they grow, uh, they're growing great. But they only have flowers. They never have any fruit. He gave you ornamental pomegranates because uh, there are a number of pomegranate varieties out there that they have, through selective hybridization, they've replaced all the reproductive parts with more floral parts. And they will have one or two or three pomegranates a year. But uh, if they're if they're blooming but not making fruit, you've almost certainly just gotten ornamental varieties. If you want the best old-fashioned productive pomegranate, look for one called Wonderful. Very easy name to remember. Um, I think you just got the ornamental varieties, and sadly, there's not a thing you can do to turn those things back into uh, into plants that make fruit. What about the sumbar? I don't know that one. Okay, it's. It's uh, one from Turkestan, and they say that uh, it's survived very cold winters in Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, it would certainly be worth trying. Um, 
you know, sometimes uh, our hot summers can be more of a problem than our cold winters. But as I understand it, I've never been to Turkey, but I know that they can get quite warm in the summer. Uh, that's just a new variety on me, but I don't have any reason to think it wouldn't do very well. There, there are a bunch of newer pomegranates out there that, uh, um, still, you know, I, I wouldn't plant a big number of them. I'd love to try them and see how they grow, and I'd recommend that to you. But if you want to plant one that you know will do well, along with your sunbar, then uh, do try the wonderful as well. Where would I find some in the San Antonio area? Virtually any nursery should have them. Fanix is most widely known for their selection of fruit trees and things like that. Uh, we normally keep them at Shades of Green. I'm sure Rainbow Gardens does. Uh, Frobacy's uh, Hill Country African Violets up there in Bernie probably has them, uh, but they're they're not hard to find. Wonderful is uh, pretty widely available. Okay, next question is: I've been fighting with my uh, improved Myers lemon trees. Okay, I've planted eight of them. Five of them have died. Uh, two of them froze back, and they're coming back out of a graft. Um, but it's on a the top side of the graph, so I assume that means it's still good. If it's above the graph, then it will be the scion. If it's below the graph, it'll be the rootstock, which will not produce anything edible. Well, it's above the graph, okay. and then I've got one that looks pretty pathetic. Uh, when it froze, I put some stuff on a called uh, Super Thrive. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not, but it's the only one that has survived out of the eight of them. Well, Super Thrive is... Uh, um it's as close to a miracle worker as i've ever seen i've seen it <laughs> my original experience with it was a lot of years ago working with my buddy alton Grimm, and uh, i thought i was planting a bunch of dead plants that had been delayed in shipment 300 of them and alton said no plant them anyway and watermen was super thrive and 296 out of 300 came out and grew so i'm a big fan of super thrive but realize that the uh, trifoliate orange rootstock, which is used as the rootstock for most citrus, is much more cold-hardy, and uh, we see every time we have a hard winter, we see a lot of citrus where the top totally freezes and dies, but then the rootstock sprouts right back out. So uh, um, using Super Thrive doesn't guarantee that you know, you'll have good growth above the rootstock, but it's, it's a great anti-shock product for just about anything out there. Uh, I just have to tell you, if you're going to plant Myers lemons, you're going to have to find a way to cover them or protect them. It, they're not like the Mexican avocados. The Mexican avocados are cold sensitive the first couple of years, and then they become very resistant to the cold. That does not happen with citrus. Citrus will be subject to freeze damage the day you plant it and it'll be subject to freeze damage 20 years from now if it lives that long so uh myers lemon's a great tree but it's going to die if it gets below about 26 degrees my wife's got one in a one of those molasses tubs yep and she's still picking lemons off hers which is really <laughs> humiliating and i was going to say she's letting you know about it isn't she <laughs> okay last question is i've been uh ear uh fertilizing my with the uh, my lemon trees with that uh, growing green, yeah, and the leaves got a yellow tint to them. A friend of mine's got lemon trees. Says no, you you need to also supplement it with another fertilizer that's specific for citrus. Is that correct? I think your yellowing on the leaves is more due to weather. There's nothing wrong with supplementing it. Uh, you know, if you want an organic fertilizer that is more specifically 
for citrus. Espoma makes one called Citrus Tone, which is uh, very acceptable. But I find that the yellowing on the leaves is usually uh, weather-related, and a little bit of yellowing on the old leaves is totally normal. If I had yellowing on the new leaves, then I might be concerned. I might want to hit them with a little bit different fertilizer. But having some older leaves yellow or just turn lighter green, uh, that's just part of growing citrus. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned because our weather here has been crazy. My uh, <laughs> pomegranate tree and my esperanza both went dormant. Uh-huh. Leaves came off, and now all of them are blooming again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm afraid another freeze is going to be a big problem. You know, welcome to Texas. It's, okay. uh, it, it's we, we have a wonderful climate most of the time, but I think Mother Nature... In Texas, just think, just become something of a prankster, and um, we had. But you know, as I occasionally get to travel around the country, I think everybody says that about their weather. But uh, um, as I was joking with uh, somebody one time from Alaska, and and I said, "Yeah, we have two seasons: summer and January." And he said, "We have two seasons: winter and the Fourth of July." So <laughs> it, it it could be worse, but. Uh, uh, Texans need to be prepared to protect things. When we choose to plant things that are not native here, we're taking on the responsibility that uh, we may have to take some extreme measures when the weather gets crazy. But uh, uh, that's just part of living in Texas, and I wouldn't live anywhere else. I'm with you. Tom, right, you have a great you weekend. And have a good day. Thank you, sir. And goodbye. All right, let's get right on back to gardening here. Looks like we're going to talk to David first, then it is going to be Cindy, Carolyn, and Frank. We start with David. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Looking forward to getting back out in this beautiful day. Yes, sir. It's a beautiful spring day. I live uh, I live west of Houston in a little town called Fulcher. Yes, sir. And I, grew, I grew up in San Antonio in the Harlandale area. And uh, I built this building out here on my property. It's 42 by 60. And when I built the building, I planned on planting all kinds of fruit trees, citrus trees, peach trees, everything. So I had the guy that did the dozer work for me dig down about seven feet, about uh-huh. four feet from the building. Okay. And we did it out, out in the yard good ways. And I planted all these trees. And I got this peach tree that's 80 feet wide, <laughs> 60, 60 feet deep. And this thing, I've got a friend of mine that's the president of the Pecan Growers Association in the Houston area. He comes over here, and he just shakes his head, and he says, this is against all reasoning that I know. I've never seen anything like this. But right now, this tree, I use a micro light on my fertilizer, on, on, for my fertilizers for all my trees. Uh-huh. And uh, it's an organic fertilizer produced in Baytown, Texas. Right. And uh, anyhow, this tree, every year, for the first six years, it's been in the ground about 10 or 11 now. Uh-huh. For the first, first six years, we got... 800 peaches off of it. Okay. And this year, it's probably got 5,000 blooms, maybe more than that. It's okay. un- this is an unbelievable tree. And and I and these moths come to this tree at night. I'm a real real big outdoors guy, and I spend so much time on my on my vegetables and fruit mm-hmm. trees and stuff. And uh, these moths come to these to this tree, and I watch them. And when the seed before the seed opens, before the bloom opens. They'll they'll spin around that bloom, and I've gotten up there with a magnifying glass, and they lay a real tiny little egg. Right. And that 
and as they as that bloom opens, that egg hatches and eats and this it. worm. Yep. Well, it crawls inside there, and and I can still get even though the peaches have them in them, uh-huh. I can still get about sixty percent of the peach. But when you get close to the middle, they're in the middle. Yep. And and uh, how do you stop these stupid things? I have done everything I know to do, and I don't want to kill the honeybees. There no. must be four hundred honeybees on that thing right now. Right. Um. I what you want to use is what they call BT stands for Bacillus thuringiensis. Um, it is a harmless to you, harmless to the bees. Uh, one thing they will not tell you on the package of BT, and it's a liquid, uh, but they won't tell you about putting molasses with it. If you will mix up and add the equivalent of about a teaspoon of molasses per gallon of spray, it will have a pretty long residual life, uh, and plenty long. If you spray at the pink bud stage, or you can actually spray while the flowers are open, and uh, you will you will not harm the bees in any way. But that caterpillar hatches, takes one bite of any portion of the flower that has some BT on it. It stops feeding and dies within a few hours. It's a stomach poison to caterpillars. And uh, it doesn't hurt anything else. Now, I would suggest, and I'm not about to tell you how to grow how to grow that tree because it's obviously doing well. But remember that with most peaches, a tree is capable of producing a given number of pounds of fruit. Number of flowers have nothing to do with it. And every now and then, you'll get a year when the tree just goes overboard with flower production, and you want to go through and pinch out you know, a half to a third of those flowers, or you'll get a huge number of peaches that are not very big and are mostly seeds. So it's going to be your choice on that issue as to whether you, you know, how many fruit you want to actually let it make. But as far as taking care of that little caterpillar, uh, BT with little molasses in it uh, uh, will do the job for you basic, pretty much 100%. And that's that's the, the dark molasses? It doesn't matter. Uh, molasses is a sugary substance. Bacteria are like teenagers. They, they're just hooked on sugar. The more sugar they get, the happier they are. So, uh, it can be literally any kind of molasses. And one teaspoon per gallon is what yeah. you're saying? Yeah. On, on your BT, you're probably gonna, depending on which brand you get, uh, that's going to be between a tablespoon and two tablespoons per gallon, but then uh, about a teaspoon of molasses in addition to the whatever the mixing on your brand of BT is. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, I certainly appreciate your time, and I just want to tell you, I hear your people calling in about the protecting their stuff. Uh, this year, for some reason, I just had a had a. I've been doing this a long, long time, and I never did figure out how to save them. And this year, one day, I was driving home from work, and I thought about it, and I I stopped and got. 60 12 foot two by fours and i put points on them mm-hmm. and i got up on a, up on a ladder and pounded them into the ground and then i wrapped every one of these trees with drop cloth on a construction company sure wrapped them with drop cloths and then put a little tiny bathroom heater in there and went down to 24 one day here yep. i went out there at three in the morning and it was 51 in one of them and 52 in the other one yeah and i've saved all my tangerines all my oranges uh it's just uh, I'm just unbelievable that I did it, and they're just looking spectacular. Well, I, you know, I, you've probably, well, you've certainly done an excellent thing. You might want to get with somebody. I doubt if you needed to do that on your tangerine. Some trees are just more sensitive to cold than others, and tangerines across the board are pretty 
cold hardy but i never mess with success whatever you're doing keep on doing it and uh the other thing that i might think about doing is uh rather than drop claws and obviously <laughs> you've got lots of work if you got that many drop claws but there are some of these row cover fabrics and you can buy that stuff uh by the yard you don't have to buy individual pieces but um things uh like the insulate it is open enough that you can leave it on the trees for an extended period of time and still get plenty of light through the tree, uh, you know, to carry on photosynthesis. But um, that way you don't have to uh, worry about taking it on, putting it off, because obviously you can't put the drop cloths on and leave them on there for a month or things won't go as well. But uh, you're doing extremely well, and uh, I want to hear about the peach cobbler later this year. Oh, uh, it's been, you know, we do, a, I go fishing in Louisiana a lot. Uh-huh. And we do a fish fry. We do a fish fry at my house. I live out in the country. We would do a fish fry at my house every year in May. And uh, last year we had eighty nine people here, and we made six, <laughs> six, six feet cobblers. And I'm telling you right now, after they ate the fish, that was the next thing that was gone. Well, and, try and we, try some fresh, fresh peach ice cream next time around. And uh, if you go over, <laughs> if you go over to Lake Calcasieu, wave to Hackberry Rod and Gun Club. Uh, a uh, cousin of mine, so to speak, works with them, and i got to make it over there one of these days because he sure does uh, send some pretty good stories. Yes, sir. That's right. That's exactly I go fishing in West Cove and in Big Lake where Hackberry Rod and Gun Club operates out of. I knew uh, Terry Shaughnessy, sure. which was the father of these guys that are doing it now, and uh, he used to ask me all the time, you need to quit doing what you're doing. You need to come dive <laughs> on me. Well, and I tell him all the time, I don't want to do that. I enjoy it. Yeah, you. If you run into Buddy Oaks over there, he'll he'll be the first to tell you that I've got my priorities all screwed up. That I ought to be fishing more. But you enjoy, and uh, it's always good to hear from you, David. Have a great great weekend. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir for your info. Always now. pleasure. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, it's going to be Cindy and Carolyn and Frank, and Cindy's up first. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning, yes, sir. Uh, glad to be talking to you this morning. Thank you. Um, I. I bought some uh, red potatoes from uh, your your store the other day, and I've got them cut in half and getting ready to plant them. Okay. And I was wondering if you could give me some tips. Well, as far as cutting them up, the you can cut them any way you like, but you always want to try to have two eyes, uh, the little spots that grow out per piece of tomato, a uh, piece of potato. I like to roll the uh, potatoes in... Uh, uh, the two things that I think work best, uh, you can use the powdered rock phosphate, like we put on the bottom of the holes for tomatoes, or you can roll them in yep. wood ashes. But that sort of seals and cauterizes that cut edge. I plant my potatoes with about an inch of soil over the top. Now, some people recommend what they call banking, and that's just mounding more soil up over them as they grow. I've tried it both ways, and in my garden, it's never really increased my production. About the only thing I have to do is periodically, one of those potatoes will be so close to the surface, it wants to start getting a little chlorophyll going, and that's you need to keep that from happening. You need to keep, if you've got any potatoes right up close to the top, Either take your finger, pop them out, and, you know, have them for dinner, or put a little more soil over the top. But uh, potatoes are very easy to grow. If we do get a late freeze and the top gets frosted, they'll typically come right back out again. But, uh, um, again, I don't wait for the cut edges to dry or anything like that. Like, say, I just I, I cut them, I dump them in my little bucket of rock phosphate, 
and uh, then just kind of roll them around as I go plant them. And if I'm out of rock phosphate, I do the same with wood ashes. Take them normally about 10 to 14 days to sprout, and uh, then you're off to the races. You can pick out little new potatoes about six weeks later, or you can let them turn into fully formed potatoes, which will usually be around early June most years. Okay, uh, so would you plant them like about six inches deep and then just cover them with no, 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 uh, one no. inch of soil? I plant them about an inch deep. If you oh, plant them, okay. if you plant them really deep, uh, it takes them a long time to come up, and sometimes I think they just don't ever come up. So I I plant them about an inch deep, and like I say, just every now and then, not very often at all, I'll have to pile a little bit of soil up, but it's. It's a minor inconvenience rather than a major job to do. But, no, I would not plant them real deep at all. Okay, yeah, because every, everybody, you, I mean, everything you read, it's plant them deep, and then, you know, it'll take a little bit longer for them to come up. No, but, it's that's uh, written for I'm another going, part of the country, not written for Texas. Okay. I've got a bunch of rock phosphate, for, so I'll do that first and then put them an inch deep. Excellent. Okay. Thank you so much. You enjoy. I appreciate the call. Thank you. All right, next up is Carolyn. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. Good morning. I haven't called in a long time, but well. I'm having a problem with my uh, with my lime tree. I, I have to put my lime tree and my Meyer lemon in the garage uh, with lights on it uh, every winter. Okay, and, and of course you're in Fort side. Worth rather than... <laughs> you're a little well, further well, north than so many of our listeners, but yes, ma'am. Yes, you're right. And this year... Uh, I saw some little shiny stuff on the leaves, so I checked out the leaves on the lime and couldn't see any aphids. I said, well, that looks like aphids, you know, mm-hmm. have been on them, but didn't see a thing. But I sprayed it anyway with the spinosad soap. Right. Well, um, lo and behold, it had it had all of these little um, black things on it. They were they were almost like a thread. They weren't like a, an aphid. I've had aphids on mm-hmm. plants you know, for years, some kind, and, and then I would see them in a cluster on what would be a bud, maybe a flower bud starting. And uh, so I had to spray them a couple of weeks later, and then I sprayed them again this week. And uh, what's happening is that lime tree is just losing all of its leaves, and I can't water it. Usually in the garage, I'll water it, you know, every couple of weeks. I'll put a little uh, 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 fertilizer in the water, mm-hmm. and I'll water it. And it it's fine, but now the it won't dry out. the uh, uh, The lemon tree next to it is not having the problem. It did have the shiny, uh, you know, like uh, on the leaves, and mm-hmm. and and I, I get rid of it. But it's not affecting the li- uh, lemon tree, but the lime tree. I'm having terrible trouble. I hardly have any leaves on it now. Well, you probably it probably is a thrips insect of some sort. And it, it just needs to get outside as soon as possible. It's, uh, I, I think that, you know, you just, lime trees are a lot more sensitive, a lot harder to get through the winter where you have to leave them inside so much of the time. Um, I, I don't know anything better than spinosad soap, uh, unless it was a very light oil that you might spray with, but, um, I, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. When you lose the leaves, the leaves are what get rid of the water. So when you start losing leaves, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just going to tell you, leave it outside except on the very cold nights. Cover it. 
uh, unless it's going to get down, you know, say below 26 or so. I think, in all honesty, it's just just not adjusting to being in the garage. Yeah, and this is the first year that's, that it's happened. Yeah. You know, and I know not to water it. I have a moisture meter, and I'm, I checked it again this morning, and I'm going, it is still uh, wet in there. Now yeah. the the and so I I'm I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. It's still the stems are still green, but it's not absorbing water. Like I said, it's it, the water yeah. is just you know I don't have to water it, and um and so I know there's a problem. Get it outside, water it in next time you do water, or actually spray the limbs with Super Thrive. That is the best thing I've oh, ever okay. found for bringing a plant out of a shock problem like that. Well, I think that it is in shock because yeah. it's just it has a few limes on it, and I've picked them. I had a bumper crop last year outside. I mean, really a bumper crop. Well, and so it it's always been a healthy healthy tree. So get it get it back I'll... outside as quickly as possible and use the Super Thrive on it, Carolyn. I look forward to talking again soon. Uh, let me get Frank in here before the end of the show. Good morning, Frank. Bob, how you doing? Great, sir. All right. Uh... A lady we work for, she's had uh, some roses that she moved a couple of years ago, uh-huh. and she put them in a bed uh, pretty close to her house, and that portion of her roof, it's a metal roof, okay. old house, about the age of your house, and that portion of the roof has rust on it, and she said those roses haven't bloomed since she's moved them to that area well it's and, probably a matter of light frank there's there's nothing related to the roof or the rust that would have any influence on roses and the roses have had anything to do with the rust on the roof but i suspect right. they they've moved into a shadier area and that's why they're not blooming yeah they they are in a little it's not much more shade but uh we told her that and i know rust is of course what an iron oxide right yeah. Yeah, if anything, it's going to benefit plants, but uh, not that much. But, no, it has nothing to do with flowering. You're absolutely right about that. 